Alpha. This is episode 96, and we have a very special guest on. Uh, today with us, there is uh, Willie J. Mandrell. So a little bit about him and, again, his background, which is uh, quite impressive. Uh, self-made multimillionaire real estate investor, broker, coach, lecturer, and author. Uh, as a buyer, seller, and a broker, uh, he's been involved with over 200 million in real estate transactions. He has been featured in numerous trade magazines, and he's a frequent guest on real estate and wealth-related podcasts. Uh, so I'm happy to have him on Beating Alpha today as well. Uh, television and radio shows across the U.S. Uh, Billy is author of The Cash Flow Secrets, a book on real estate investing and finance tips. Most people are never taught but need to know. So again, uh, all these links, uh, again, for LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, websites, uh, you know, the book, I mean, all that stuff is going to be down below for you to, to follow and check. Uh, but first of all, Billy, I appreciate you for being today on the show. No, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, that's no problem. That's no problem. Listen, so first question first, uh, I think everybody would like to kind of get to know you a little bit better, your background, where you're coming from, and how did you get involved with the real estate business? Yeah, sure. My um, my grandparents were in the real estate business. Um, they uh, kind of dabbled, moved to Boston um, in the 1950s, bought some real estate, kind of learned the business as they as they went. They weren't they, the rich dad, poor dad wasn't available. The millionaire real estate, you know, there weren't these manuals out there to show you how to invest in real estate uh, when they were doing it. But they just bought um investment properties rented out rooms and slowly paid off the mortgage and property started to appreciate neighborhoods started to change and they were like this is wonderful let's let's do it again let's buy another one um and when i came along um it skipped a generation my, my uncle and my father really didn't want to get involved in the business they had other things that they wanted to pursue uh when me and my brothers came along they had us knocking on doors collecting rents sweeping downstairs um and one of the things that my grandmother had always said to me was um if i was able to build what I'm able to build uh, based on my education and my upbringing, you with a high school education, a college education, you're going to be able to do a lot more. You have the accounting background now, the financing background, a finance background, um, and a wealth of uh, information that's available to you. Um, so you should be able to take what I'm doing and take it to the next level. And that, that, that always stuck with me um, because she was absolutely right. She made a, a millionaire out of herself uh, with a sixth grade education. Uh, moving to Boston as a black woman in the 1950s, um, rather impressive at the time. So, I, you know, when I graduated from college, um, you know, I went out and bought my first multifamily, two family, uh, 2006, right before the market crashed in 2007, housing market in 2008. Um, I rode the market down, um, have no regrets, though. I bought a few more properties in 20, uh, 2010, 11, 12, 14, 16, um, and then just kind of rode that upswing. Uh, and here we are in 2020, um, pretty decent sized portfolio, roughly 45 units in Boston or probably be 60 before the end of the year. And um, just kind of the plan is just kind of just continue to keep growing. Got it, got it, got it. So again, uh, big thank you to your family, you know, put, like putting you on and giving you the right mindset kind of to take the first uh, first steps in the right way which is, again, uh, I, I think you're grateful to, to have those type of people around you because maybe not all the time the families is the ones who kind of support you to, you know, towards the, you know, becoming wealthy or rich, like whatever that may be. But uh, again, talking your first, uh, first deals, can you talk about those? I mean, what was your first experience like, you know, per acquiring your first, uh, first property? Yeah, so like I said, I bought that, that first deal in 2006 and 
um, you know, here in, you know, in the States and, you know, in Boston, we, um, we had a, I was in a stock market business. I was in the, I was a, a financial uh, advisor at the time as well. Um, it's what I did when I got directly out of, out of college and the, you know, the stock market crashed 2007, um, took a huge tank, uh, housing market, not too long, but, you know, behind that 2008. And, um, so I had, I had been bought my first property a couple of years later, the property's worth 60, $70,000 less than what it was worth. Uh, when I bought it, uh, and it hurt, it stung. I put a lot of money into it, put a lot of time into it, um, but I chopped it up as kind of like my master's degree or my PhD um, in real estate. I got a first hand at collecting rents, becoming a landlord, seeing what it's like um, to manage people and manage a building, uh, just learning the the business itself um, with a with a duplex, um, you know, here in here in the Boston area, and one of the lessons that I've learned through, you know, economics in, in school was that the real estate market, like many other things, works in cycles. You're going to have downturns. You're going to have upswings. Um, and intelligent investors understand this. And while everybody else is running away during a downturn, intelligent investors are picking up assets at a discount. Uh, and that's what I tried to do. It was very difficult to, while everyone else is saying, you know, they're getting foreclosed on or their homes are being taken away. I'm trying to go out and find the resources for financing to buy in additional investment properties. But um, I'm glad I did that. That first property, um, I got I got my ass kicked on it. Um, but uh, properties number two, three, four, five um, are, were all great purchases uh, and allowed me to, uh, you know, kind of ride that market back up and build some great equity. Mm, got it, got it. Because because that that was my kind of following question. Because for a lot of people who are watching, and I, again, if you're from states, you already know like Boston could be one of those kind of pricey markets where you know real estate prices are like super high. You know, mm -hmm. San Francisco is being you know some other place like these. But uh, like, what what is your approach with finding the deals? Even though I mean you're in very kind of uh, you know, expensive market, what is the way are you able to source these deals? I mean, and and like, what are the price points are you looking at? Can you just go through uh, basically your deal deal criteria and the ways you're looking for deals? Yeah, yeah. So here in, here in Boston, you're right, it, it, real estate's very expensive. Um, there are certain pockets that are, are, are more working class neighborhoods, blue collar neighborhoods, and those are the neighborhoods that I'm, I'm trying to look for, right? I'm not going to, if you're familiar with Boston, Newberry Street, or the back bay or the financial center and buying uh, luxury condos and renting those out. I'm looking for more, like I said, blue collar, uh, working class neighborhoods uh, where we can go in and potentially buy things at a discount. Um, the, I'm staying in the residential space. I'm a multifamily investor, but when I say that, I mean two, threes and fours. I re very rarely buy anything above that. You're into commercial real estate right now. I find that you have very savvy brokers, you have very savvy uh, investors who own these properties and invest in these properties. I find that there's more opportunity uh, to create value within that residential space, the twos, threes, primarily three, three units uh, and fours. And what I'm doing, my, my, prim my primary business at this point uh, is no longer buying rent-ready properties or um, habitable properties. What I'm looking for is heating systems are bad roof is leaking windows are drafty um you know so would, you, uh, would you would you consider those kind of distressed properties is that what you're looking for? exactly that's that's exactly what i'm looking for because those are the properties where i'm able to create value uh and go in and if anybody's familiar um my primary strategy is the burr strategy the b-r-r-r -R -R, the buy renovate um 
uh, rent and refinance. So I'm able to go in, create some value, and then pull my capital back out and, and, and redo the process and start over. And that's how you're able to build um, a, you know, a much larger portfolio and scale a lot faster uh, than if somebody has to save up 20 or 25%, put that down, and then save up another 25%. Again, there might be four or five years or more between each individual purchase. Um, so to give you some hard numbers here in Boston, what I'm looking for is uh, roughly, let's call it 600,000 uh, as a purchase price. That'll be a three family, needs a lot of work. I'll probably look at investing roughly $200,000 into it. Um, that's new windows, new heating system, new roof, um, insulation. Um, you know, here in Boston, we're in a very cold climate. So obviously, you know, heating systems and insulation or, you know, new electrical, big things, uh, big ticket items. I'm increasing the value. I'm buying at a deep discount. I'm putting 200,000 into it. But when, I, when it's done, it's not worth 800,000. That's what I owe on it. It's probably worth closer to a million. I'm also going in and maximizing the rents. I'm, under, I'm taking two bedrooms and maybe turning them into three bedrooms or taking threes and turning them into fours, maximizing the rent on the building, therefore maximizing the value of the building. Um, so six purchase price, two invested into the building. Uh, it's probably worth a million when it's all said and done. I have an 80% loan to value ratio. The bank basically now says we can go give you a permanent financing loan, pull your cash back out and kind of pay off um, all of my hard money or whatever private financing I use to actually get into the initial purchase. Mm, got it. So for the people who are watching, maybe they came up with a question because uh, I, I came up with it. Uh, I mean, it, it rang in my head. What about the economies of scale? You know, as you talked about, you're kind of buying all these duplexes, you know, up to like four, uh, four unit properties. What about like buying one single deal where you sign one contract when you like get a one loan at a time and it, it could be like 20 or 50 unit deal? Like, are you planning to invest in those type of multifamily deals in the future? Or what, what is your strategy? No, for me, and again, this may be something different for everybody, depending on their market, but I'll give you my answer. And hopefully it doesn't, you know, you know, offend anybody who's already kind of on this path. But I think what you're talking about right now is is syndication, right? Because most people don't have the resources to go out and buy a 50 unit building on their own. Yeah. So what you're doing with um, is you're raising capital, you're going out, and you're saying, Willie, and Willie's mother and aunt, can I can I um, would you like to invest in this project? And do you have a hundred thousand or 200,000 bucks? And you are the general partner. So when people say they own 2000 units, it's typically not them themselves that own 2000 units. They are the uh, managing member or managing member of a fund or they syndicate, right? So the problem that I have with syndication is you are not necessarily in control. If, if I invest into a partnership and the partnership says, we're going to buy this building and in five years, we're going to cash out and it should be worth X. That's great. In five years, I'm expecting my money. So as a general partner, I'm on a very short timetable, whereas I, I really can't um, dictate what happens, right? If the market takes a dip or if the market goes up, whatever, I have to basically sell out in five years because that's when my investors are expecting their money back. My portfolio, I'm in complete control of that. I do have investors, but we're gonna, the plan is to hold on for 10, 15. They ride it out with me and let me dictate when we can, um, when, when is the best time to make that move. So that's the first problem I have with, with the, the, you know, the syndicating. Um, that and after you sell out, let's say you do, you are successful and you ride the market up and uh, you sell out in five years. What now are you going to do with that money? If the property was an excellent, 
Flint property. You should have just held on to it, but you couldn't because you had to sell it because of your, your, your investors wanted their money back. Now the market is great and now you have trouble finding deals. So you're, the problem I have with syndication or the second problem is you're constantly looking for the next big play or the next deal. So syndication to me is more like a high paying job than it is a investment vehicle, um, if, that, if that makes sense, right? So I tend to stay that. And the, the last problem that I have with syndication is, again, you're working with savvy investors and savvy brokers. They trade on cap rate um, and other measures, right? Whereas me operating in the two to three to four family space, I, I am operating with more, and this may sound awful, but more emotional sellers, right? More emotional sellers, people who are, um, someone passed away and they're in a distressed situation. Um, someone who says, hey, I hate the winters in Boston and I just want to move to Florida or Miami or whatever, or California, whatever it may be. I emotionally want to get out of this. And I find that when you are working in that space, I have more opportunity to create value for myself than if I was buying something on a four cap here in Boston and just waiting for the appreciation to happen. Hopefully all that, that makes sense to you. Well, it definitely makes sense to me and to the people who are watching, because as, as maybe you've seen before, if you check the episode, we have a lot of syndicators and I'm yeah. sure some of them will get offended, but I mean, it's, right. it's perfectly fine because at the same time, everybody has kind of their own strategies for real estate investing. And, you know, that's, that's your strategy in the given market, you know? Right. So talking about the markets, as I mentioned, uh, you buying deals for the people who are stressed themselves and the properties are distressed. They're looking to move away, you know, to and maybe retire to Florida and other states. So what do you think is your approach is going to be in the future? Are you planning to invest out of state also? Um, that's a good question. I don't know just yet. Right now, I've done everything at home. And I'm, I'm a big believer in really understanding your market, really understanding your niche. Um, and I know a lot of people go out of state. And I've done this as well. I've gone out of state. I've gone out of town because markets were a little bit less expensive and they were easier to get into. But sometimes that's not the best approach. Sometimes the, the, the difficult, there's a high barrier to entry to get into Boston, but it's for a reason. Um, when Boston, when the rest of the country takes a dip, Boston doesn't feel that. You know, if the country takes a 15% dip, we might be two or three or 5% in Boston. And why is that? Um, for what reason? Again? Why is that? I mean, for what reason? We just, we, we, we have a great, uh, there, there's just great resources here in Boston. We have, I mean, Harvard, you know, Harvard is here. MIT is here. Um, BU, BC, some of the best universities, some of the best hospitals. Um, we have a reason to be here um, for people. People come all from all over the world and they don't leave. Um, so there's a serious demand for housing. Um, whereas there are other areas of the country, other states, other um uh, pockets where you might have a single employer. It's Amazon. It's a, you know, uh, Sitco or one of the gas companies. And if they move or if they reduce their employment, um, the whole town, the whole neighborhood, the big cities, the auto industry in Detroit, uh, when, you know, the auto ma manufacturers start going more automated uh, and use less manual labor, Detroit takes a big hit. That's not necessarily the case in Boston. We have a lot of different, um, uh, the, the economy here is very strong. And again, the only thing I, I, I laugh now because the only this is the first time that we've really taken a hit with coronavirus, um, whereas the, some of the, the big institutions, some of the Harvard's, the MIT's now are operating more virtually. Uh, and now you see Boston start to take a little bit of a dip. But I think those those things will, will definitely come back. Um, so some of the best universities, some of the best hospitals here, um, people come and they tend to tend to stay here. A lot of jobs 
um, which means a lot, a, a, a serious need for housing, which means that rents just continue to go up. Got it, got it. And, it, and you make it sound so sexy, you know, for the people who are listening. <laughs> I think some of those will be like, hey, forget it, forget Florida and, and Texas, I'm moving to Boston. No, I mean, again, it's, it's, it all comes down to, again, I, I, sorry, I was trying to make a point, but yes, there's a high barrier to entry, um, but it's worth it at the end of the day, right? So if you can get in, you struggle to get in, but the people who get in usually end up doing pretty well for themselves. Um, so you might go to a Florida or, or you know, a Detroit or a Philadelphia, it's easier to get in, um, but it's also easier to take a, 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 you know, a substantial hit when things change. Mm-hmm. Got it. So, so I get it. The Boston is a little bit more stable than the rest of the. States. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, talking about your uh, tenant kind of background, what will be kind of your perfect tenant that you're looking for your properties? Um, I would say you know we again we operate in working class neighborhoods. Um, we have a combination of I would say sixty forty. Um, a lot of our tenants are subsidized. Um, so again, Boston's a very expensive market. Uh, we have a lot of programs um, that allow uh, tenants to uh, or assist tenants to move into um, some of the rentals and keep them in their neighborhood. So, so um, are, you, are you talking, is there any of the properties that you have as section, section eight? There are, there are. And again, that's, that's the, 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 the primary program section eight um, or subsidized, um, you know, housing vouchers. Um, I would say that we're 60, 40 um, subsidized market. Um, so again, we're operating in very blue collar um, working class neighborhoods. Um, most of our tenants are, you know, um, you know, mother with, you know, two or three children, you know, father, mother, father, two, three children, um, you know, you know, two, two job, two income jobs, um, or two income households, should I say. Um, and, and again, some of those have a, a subsidy as well. And we, and we like the subsidies, especially, uh, during a time like this, when, um, you know, here in a, you know, here in the States, we have 40 million jobs uh, that were lost during the coronavirus, um, but the subsidies keep paying. As long as the city or the state is paying their bills, um, we're in a pretty good position. So that's good. So, so you know, I know there's a lot of people talking about Section 8 as kind of being a, a tough spot to be in, you know, because, again, there's a different tenants. Uh, who are moving into these properties who are kind of government supported places. So, but I, I mean, at the end of the day, when the Corona time is here, I mean, it's yeah. a kind of good strategy and it works out for the people who might not be working at that time, you know, so they can pay, continue to pay rent. So mm-hmm. what about your tenant screening process? You know, as I mentioned, it, it could be a little bit uh, different tenant, you know, kind of backgrounds when it comes to the Section 8 properties and just a regular kind of deals and, you know, regulars of people. So is there a different uh, screening process that you use, you know, for those people or is kind of use the same approach? Yeah, no, we use a very similar approach. Um, we don't, we don't, um, how do I, how do I put this? We don't uh, uh, just allow anyone into our units, right? I think, and I think that's the negative uh, stigma that they have, or, you know, some people have around Section 8 tenants or housing voucher tenants is that, someone you just have to let anyone in and when they get in they're just going to mess up your place or they're just going to, to destroy things um and i think this is why you have to create a niche for yourself this is really why you have to understand your market and if you're investing out of state and in this place and this place you really don't understand the nuances you really don't understand the um the details and the details are really where you make the money i understand that i love uh, you know, housing voucher tenants, because we don't treat them any differently. You still need a, you know, a good credit score. We still require a 650 or above. We still want you to have a security deposit, regardless of where your security deposit comes. If your rent is 2000 bucks, you need to have 2000 bucks on tap. 
with us as a security deposit. And if you damage the property, we're going to, you know, retain that and you don't get that back at, at move out. Um, you still need some other source of income because a lot of times the subsidy will help you out with rent, but they're not helping you out with utilities um, or food or car payments or cable or internet. Um, so if you're not making any money, and I've made this mistake before where I said, well, the subsidy's paying. Um, she doesn't need to make any money. Well, that, that was false because her heating system was off the entire winter and actually damaged the heating system because it, it froze over during the winter. So I understand that though the subsidy is paying, we still want to see other income from you. Um, so security deposit, other income, uh, subsidy is paying, and you have a good credit score. Um, and if all those things are there, then I would almost prefer that over a market rate tenant, you know, if that makes sense to you, right? Because if you're basically saying, yes, this person is guaranteed rent from the government, plus they have a good credit score, plus they're working another job on, on the side, and I'm getting a security deposit, that is the you know, perfect combination for me. Um, you know, I would actually prefer that over uh, someone who is, um, you know, just paying or trying to trying to make it on their own. Got it. Got it. So can you share, because uh, maybe you have a, a one or a couple, you know, kind of horror stories or maybe, you know, is it maybe something, something, you know, just bad happening with the tenants, you know, because I think, you know, the, the best way that people can learn and again, you know, appreciate you being, you know, an episode and sharing all the pieces, you know, of section eight and government kind of place. So, but I think the best way is kind of to learn from the mistakes. So it, if you can share, you know, like one of those stories that people I think uh, could take a really good advantage from that and learn. Yeah, sure. Um, I would, it's a horror story. I wouldn't say it was a mistake of, of mine, um, though I don't mind sharing mistakes of mine. I, I'll, I'll, let me think about something there. But we recently had um, uh, a new building we just bought. And I mean, literally, I don't know that you can have anything worse than a three family building. And the woman on the third floor falls asleep while she was running a bath for herself. Um, and you can only imagine what happens from there, right? I mean, I get a call from the second floor and there's water pouring into my, my apartment. Please come you know, quickly. I don't know what to do. Um, I get a call immediately after that from the first floor. My ceiling's caving in. Um, so you know, you, everyone's banging. I, you know, I'm, at the time, I was 45 minutes away from the site. So you can only imagine what uh, pouring water into units for 45 minutes can do. So I requested that you know, they go bang on the third floor and just see what was happening. Well, she was asleep, didn't wake up. Um, it was just complete disaster. And, you know, the lesson is you just have to have reserves. You have to have, um, you know, make sure your insurance covers, uh, you know, damages like those. Um, your tenants uh, should also have uh, uh, landlord tenant, excuse me, uh, renter's insurance uh, is a really good idea because when their personal property gets damaged, that's not your responsibility as a landlord. But at the same time, they're going to request it. They're going to be pissed at you because the tenant on the third floor fell asleep water poured into their apartment and damaged their TV. Well, my insurance covers the walls and the ceiling and repairing the sheetrock and any floor buckling from the water, but it does not cover repairing or replacing their TV. That would be a renter's insurance policy for them. So having, making sure and pushing your tenants to get renter's insurance uh, um, to cover damages like that, and just making sure you have some extra cash and reserves. Um, I know a couple landlord uh, partners or friends of mine actually bake in renter's insurance right into their rent. So if the rent is, let's call it 1400 bucks, they will charge 1450 and almost go out and get a renter's insurance policy for their tenants just to make sure that they have that, uh, that policy there. Um, you know, mistakes that I've made personally over the years, 
Um, I would say not buying enough during bad markets. I, I think that one of the biggest things that I preach um, to you know uh, clients of mine and, and just other young investors getting into the market is do not follow the crowd. The crowd in most cases, I would say 95% of the cases is wrong. If there is a fire in your home and everyone's running to the door, you should probably follow the crowd. Other than that, um, when it comes to your personal finances, the majority, you know, people are successful because not everybody has success. If everyone had it, it would just be the way of life. So if you think about Warren Buffett and Mark Cuban and um, anybody else who you think that is, you know, very successful and you look towards, they did things differently than everyone else is doing them. So the thing that I, I would say the mistake that I had is when everyone else in 2010 was worried about, you know, you know, the market dropping further and I'm seeing things or assets that I could pick up at 50% of what they were in 2000 and, uh, and 2006 and 2005, I did it, but I was still very hesitant. I didn't go out and really kind of believe in myself fully. I was kind of, you know, sticking my toe in the water, um, and testing it. And, um, so being a little bit older, if we have another recession, it does hurt your net worth. It does hurt your portfolio value. But I understand that, you know, being where I am in the mid to late thirties, I'm going to probably experience two or three more recessions um, in my life, if, if not, you know, a few more. And I understand that buying the dips is crucial if I'm going to be, uh, if I'm going to be successful. Got it. So looking at the current market conditions, I mean, uh, how many deals do you have coming in in the pipeline? How many deals are you looking at? And how many deals are you planning to close until the end of the year? No, excellent question. So I can tell you, I'm going to back up a little bit. I can tell you nine months ago before uh, the virus hit, we were probably, money was super easy to come by. Um, I can't even tell you right now what some of the banks were giving me because, I mean, they would probably be ashamed of themselves because, um, you know, deals were harder to come by but money was super easy to come by. The reverse is the, is the issue right now. We're seeing more deals. Um, so to give you a number, I would say nine months ago, I was probably looking at um, probably a hundred deals for every three that I was buying. So I was probably buying 3% of the deals that were coming in. Once I found that deal, money was super easy to, 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 to come into. Now my phone is ringing a lot more for deals. There are people that are you know tired of hanging out in their house um, they want to just get out there. There, there are other emotional reasons that they're looking to, to, to move on. Um, we have, uh, 12 units under contract and I would probably anticipate closing at least 15 to 20 before the year's over. Um, but now you have the reverse trend where money is a little bit harder to come by. Now we're hiring brokers to go out and find us, um, good lending opportunities. Whereas I just had to call a couple banks before. Um, and I was struggling to find deals. Now the deals are, are coming into our pipeline and we're struggling a little bit to find lending, but I'm pretty sure that we're gonna, we're going to get it done. So that kind of that, uh, that seesaw is kind of flipped there now. Got it. So, so I've seen on the website that you, you yourself do provide lending for other real estate investors. So, I mean, do you do that at the current moment or, or that kind of postponed for now? We probably postponed for now. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, we're actually calling other brokers ourselves at this point, you know, so um, if, if someone did need help uh, with lending, um, you know, especially hard money, commercial financing, um, even residential, if you're local to, you know, Massachusetts or, um, you know, New England area, um, I can definitely give me a call. Um, I can definitely put you on my list. And as things start to open up, we can certainly start to talk, but even myself at the very moment, and again, 
this is it, things in the economy and things in the business change day to day, month to month. Um, that could be different three months from now. Um, but as of today, um, we are actually calling brokers ourselves to help us find uh, find a little lending. Got it. Got it. Awesome. So uh, again, I've seen that you're also coach people at the same time. I, I guess it's kind of real estate coaching and helping them to buy their own first properties, right? So can you talk about you know the mindset part, which again I love what you mentioned. You said if uh, if everybody could be successful, it kind of be just a lifestyle for everybody, but not everybody can achieve the success again because of the you know mindset limitations, you know all these uh, things that are happening in our heads. So can you talk about kind of the coaching process? I mean, how do you help people to to like go through the, the entire process and acquire those first deals? Yeah, sure. I mean, I do a little bit of coaching for, for a lot of different aspects in real estate. I mean, I do everything from I'm running a construction site and I, you know, I, I, I want to uh, don't know whether my contractor is doing the right thing or I'd like you to kind of walk through and give me an objective opinion. Um, you know, the local market should I am I overbuilding or my underbuilding for what I'm what I'm looking for. To, and that those are more local uh, connections to everything from, you know, uh, clients in California and Texas and across the country. And, you know, um, hopefully at some point, you know, across the globe, um, just, you know, giving them those first steps, giving them a sounding board, someone to talk to to say, you've been through this before. How do I, is this a unique problem or how did you overcome this a problem? How do you go out and really scale that portfolio? Am I growing too quickly? Am I not growing quickly enough? How do I go out and find um, the lending resources I need? Okay, I own eight properties now, and I bought them all with FHA loans or you know uh, local um, you know owner occupied loans. How do I go out and find private money or use hard money or um, talk to you know other lenders on the commercial level now? Uh, and just helping investors kind of just scale up from wherever they are. Um, so yeah, I have clients in, that are buying their first home and just kind of talking them through using the right real estate agent, finding the right mortgage broker and the things that they should be looking forward to. People who own 25, 30 units. Um, and again, need, act, I act more as a sounding board to say, what do you think about this next step? What do you think about this building? I'm going into it, but I'd love, I'd, I'd never, I'd love another set of eyes on the analysis to make sure that I'm not missing anything. Got it. So during these times, again, it kind of relates to the coaching, you know, there's a lot of people facing all this uncertainty, they kind of don't know what's going to happen in the future for them for the business for the income. So what will be kind of your uh, advice for them when it comes to, you know, finance investments at the moment? Yeah, I mean, just don't do what everyone else is doing. If you if you're looking at, you know, and again, I'm not sure if this is happening in every place. But let's say if you're looking at Zillow, um, Zillow is a popular, you know, uh, site here for um, home estimates or home value estimates. And the Zillow estimate says that the property is worth 40% of what it was, you know, three years ago, two years ago, whatever it may be. Um, I, and this is just the way I believe, I believe people, our population is only growing and people are going to need somewhere to live. I don't think there's a, a tech solution right now for housing, right? There's no um, digital solution for housing. We still need a brick and mortar roof over your head, a piece of land, uh, people want their own bedrooms, their own parking spots, their own garages. So homes are still going to be uh, of value. Right now, they're taking a, you know, if, if they are taking a dip, um, they will come back. That's my personal opinion. They have, they, they, we've done this before. Markets work in cycles. We take dips. We come back strong. Um, the population is growing in most cities, in most states, um, around the globe, and we're going to need additional housing. So um, housing is a safe bet, I would say. 
Um, if you're, if you have the opportunity to purchase something that was 40% less than what it was a couple of years ago, go ahead and, and, and grab it, go ahead. And, and, and if it rents out for the right number and it can cover all of your expenses, I would say that's a pretty good bet. So for me personally, I'm still buying, I'm encouraging my clients and anybody who I'm coaching and mentoring continue to buy, especially during the dips, especially when everyone else is emotionally running away from the market, you should be running towards it. And that's how you become successful. Got it. Awesome. Great advice. And again, uh, for more, for more kind of information, knowledge, all those great tips, uh, you know, for investing, finance, real estate, you have a book that's called Cashflow Secrets, right? So can you talk about the book itself? Uh, what people are going to expect when they're going to purchase a book? Yeah. So Cashflow Secrets is, um, it's basically just a compilation of all my experiences, um, the good, the bad. We talk about economics. We talk about, um, I, I found that most real estate books um, went straight into real estate and they didn't talk about all the other topics surrounding that. And that's what I really wanted to do with Cashflow Secrets is people understand investing in real estate from a, you know, from a, from a straight forward point. But what I wanted to touch upon in Cashflow Secrets was um, the why, the, the, the what is your net worth and why do you, why do you need to build it and how, what is cash flow? And let's talk a little bit about retirement and why working and saving up for uh, a retirement is just a faulty way to go about things. And I, that's one thing I'll talk to you really quickly about that. Um, one of the things that kind of blew me away when I was younger was the idea that you can save up. You were supposed to work from the time that you were 25 or whenever you got out of college until you were 65. And then from 65 to 85 or whenever you passed away, you were supposed to enjoy life. And then in 2007, 2008, I saw people that were supposed to be retired or going into the retirement, going back to work. They were working at Walmart or your local grocery store. And I was like, why is that? They were supposed to be going into the retirement, enjoying these years. Why are they going back to work? it was partly because they had too much money tied up into the stock market. The stock market dips by 40% or 50%. They weren't hard assets, right? So they just basically were saving, 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 and depending on someone else to a fund manager to pick the right stocks or their mutual funds and hope that they you know, retire comfortably. I'm a big proponent of real estate because you are in more control. Um, regardless of whether my portfolio dips by 10% or 15%, the value of my assets still goes down but the cash flow is likely uh, unlikely to change. The rents typically do not move. They, they continue to, uh, to come in. My mortgage payment is not going to go up. It's going to continue to stay the same. My taxes and insurance are going to continue to stay, to stay the same. So I encourage people through cash flow secrets to stop saving for retirement and replace that saving with buying assets and building cash flow. Um, so regardless of whether you want to retire at 50 and you live to 100, you should still be cash flowing and pulling in money regardless. I don't think that you can save. I think that you have to build other streams of income so you can continue to make money into your retirement. That's the only way that you're going to be able to do it. So those are one of the things that we talk about during cash flow secrets, um, the importance of building cash flow uh, and uh, uh, streams of income, passive streams of income to supplement yourself uh, no matter when you decide to, to, to call it quits. Yeah, got it. Because, you know, the entire game is kind of simple, right? I don't know why is it so difficult for so many people to, because everybody, I mean, who's watching, uh, I mean, probably you're coming here for those simple kind of nuggets that you can take away and implement in your business or start a business, uh, change mindset, which is great. 
but my strategy is always just try not to complicate things because it's exactly what you said instead of investing you know 100k 500k into you know the stock market which again you know you've been inside the stock market you know the way it works and i mean you can read a few books and you will understand i mean it's a loser's game unless you work in wall street uh and you know investing the same amount of money actively passively buying your own deals you know in real estate is definitely gonna pay up far more you know if, if it's right. through you know cash and cash return you know uh, appreciation or whatever that might be but like the reason why people complicate it is it, just it's just too difficult for me to understand personally yeah no it is it, it and i again i i had all those industry licenses your series 7 your 24 53 and i was doing compliance and everything and at the end of the day um, I just didn't believe in it. Someone else was in control. Mark Zuckerberg was in control of my portfolio. Jeff Bezos was in control of my financial future. Um, and I didn't like that. With real estate, it's a tangible asset. I can improve it. I can manage it. I select my tenants. Um, I can kick out my tenants. I'm in control. It's a little bit more work at the end of the day. It's not completely passive, but um, it is something that, it, you know, at the end of the day, your financial future or your retirement, when you decide to, to settle down, is too important to leave in the hands of someone else. Got it. So what is your approach talking about investing, you know, and what do you think about the, you know, diversification approach? Are you looking to invest, you know, diversify stocks, uh, maybe invest in real estate, some other options? Uh, do you, are you a believer in that? Or are you just kind of think I, of just one thing? And No, 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 I, I absolutely do. I do. I do think that you should diversify. And it is, that is a very good question because it's a tough uh, thing for me. It's something I think about on a regular basis. My wife has, uh, you know, cash in her portfolio or her 401k account. We're in mutual funds. I have a small E-Trade account, which I have um, there. And I think for me, diversification is going to come um, with a little bit of the market because I'm not, when I, when I say that, I'm saying I'm not a believer. It doesn't mean that I'm not, I would say, put nothing in the market when we just had a little bit of a dip here in the States. Um, you know, I, you know I, uh, I threw some money into the market as well. Um, any, any, I, I, any, any stock picks for people? I, I, again, I'm, <laughs> I'm a real estate guy, but I will give you, I, I went heavy on the travel industry. Um, it, yeah. Travel industry was hit, um, hit hard. I bought a bunch of airline stock, a bunch of cruise stock, a bunch of and, hotel and, stock. And, and sorry, sorry, the strategy, you, you sure. don't trade, you don't trade, you, you don't, you no. don't, you don't. No, short. I'm buying hold. I'm buying hold, hold all the way. I buy, I buy assets at a discount. Um, and I, I hold on to them. I'm not a day trader. I wouldn't, I, when I, when I say I bought those, I bought those and I haven't looked at them. That was back in, I want to say March or April of 2020. And I haven't looked at the account since I, I basically had some cash sitting there. And when I saw things just take a dip, um, obviously with, with coronavirus, you know, the travel industry is going to take a beat, right? There's no one in hotels right now. There's, um, airlines are, you know, uh, uh taking, taking flights away, um, cruises are just shut down altogether, but my belief is that those stocks are going to come back when we're, when we're out of this, when we find a vaccine and the world starts to travel again and put things back in place, it's going to be absolutely crazy because everyone's been cooped up in the house for, you know, nearly what, seven or eight months now, and it could be much longer. Um, people are going to be spending boatloads of money on airlines and cruises and hotels and just trying to get away from, uh, the scenery that they had. So, I went super heavy on any industry that 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 took a hit during um, coronavirus, and you know, again, but I'm not a stock guy, so um, I wouldn't even encourage anybody to follow that that trend. I'm, you know, I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that yeah, I'm, uh, I got it. Just, I'm right just, a, just a common sense and a gut feeling, right? 
exactly. That and that's it. It's I, I threw some money, and again, it, I'm, when I say that, I, it wasn't my life savings. It wasn't something that if I'm dead wrong, uh, sucks. Um, but I'm not going to be like you know. Now we have to sell our home because we you know, we went too heavy into uh, the stock market. Um, so so, and the other thing I would say about diversification, you're absolutely right. Um, for me, it may be um, getting out of real estate, and I wouldn't say getting out of real estate, but um, putting some money into other business opportunities directly. So um, more of a Shark Tank type of, uh, you know, atmosphere where I go out and find small business owners and uh, invest directly into their businesses um, to diversify myself away from just the real estate um, or buy uh, real estate that works in different uh, markets. For me, I'm in a blue collar. Things are very, very um, streamlined. Maybe I go down to more of a Miami or a Florida and buy more uh, vacation. A lot more volatility in that market, um, but it does it doesn't work in tandem with Boston real estate. So maybe it's just another real estate market that operates a little bit differently. Got it. Got it. So I want to talk about something that, that you mentioned. I think it could be very beneficial to people who are watching. Again, you mentioned you have a little bit of experience of being a shark for a little bit and looking for those, you know, uh, you know, different ventures that you can pour your capital in. So again, because, you know, in this day and age, there's a lot of people during the COVID or prior to COVID, a lot of people kind of moving towards business and looking mm -hmm. to start the business. So kind of what is your approach and take, you know, on the like keys uh, that you can find in a business that, you know, it's going to become a successful? Um, the keys, is it, is it something that's going to change people's lives? And I know that's probably cliche. And I know, you know, like I said, if you, if you were if you're a fan of Shark Tank, um, you know, Mr. Wonderful says that, you know, on a regular basis, but I think it's absolutely right. Um, is it, is it going to change the way we do business? Is it going to change the way, um, we operate, you know, uh, you know, and, and that's really what you're looking for. So, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, or end world hunger or anything like that, or, you know, find it, you know, I'm not talking about another renewable, you know, source of energy or anything like that. It's just small changes to the way that we do things. Um, for me, it, it's not going to be, you know, uh, a friend's t-shirt company, um, or, you know, uh, you know, a cell phone case company. That's just not what I'm, what I'm interested. Those things are not going to, uh, change the way we operate, um, in, at, at a local level or at a, you know, a global level. So I'm looking for, um, things that, you know, that, uh, or businesses that, um, that are making a uh, big change at the end of the day. You know that change the way we we operate um, through a through a, a business level or through the way that we live. Got it, got it. That's very interesting. I, I love what you just said. So instead of a be becoming adding more to the noise, existing noise, as you said, right. you know, with the with the phone cases, just looking for ways to kind of solve problems, which right. of course is coming back to the point of you know just thinking big, because right. you know for for you to create this type of business, you need to kind of. As, as you know mark cuban told you know said before he was like always see uh before people you know like see what's happening always look behind the corner and kind of see before yeah. then so yeah. it requires for you to to kind of have this vision and you know it's i don't know what it takes you know because i'm not you know more cuban level but i'm sure it's kind of different different mindset different mentality and just probably different people around them yeah no what, what i can what i can tell people if i can add just this really quickly is sure one of the things that i've um you know, I, I've, I've noticed as I continue to grow and, you know, I mean, you know, I've been in this business since I was 23, I'm 37 now. Um, so it's been, I don't even know, 14 years or so. Um, it can be very lonely. 
Um, and I think that's one of the things that people have to, I wouldn't say get over, but you have to recognize that if you're going to be successful, you're not going to have a ton of people around you applauding you constantly and telling you, yes, this is right. Because if it was, again, it goes back to that same thing. If everyone was, was successful, um, no one would really be because it would just be the way of life. So it can be very lonely when you're going out and venturing off to do things um, when yourself, you have to be a leader. You have to be able to go out and do things that um, are, are not popular. Um, are, are, are when I was 23 and buying a house, most of my friends were getting drunk somewhere. Um, most of my friends were, you know, just hanging out on the weekends where I was mowing lawns and, and trying to collect rents. And, um, and now you're talking about 10 years later, 14 years later, um, I was tagged as brilliant or, and, you know, I, I wasn't brilliant. I, I, all I did was just like more, like you mentioned, look around the curve, look, or look, look, look a little bit ahead, um, and try to anticipate what's coming. Um, and it's the same thing, you know, my grandmother did as well. You know, she just basically looked ahead and said, this is a great neighborhood and this neighborhood's going to improve. Um, it has improved. Uh, it's in the center of the city. Um, let's continue to buy here. And I think that's, that's the toughest part is being a leader and leadership can be very lonely in, in, in some respects. Um, and I think you have to find a way to um, continue to push yourself uh, independent of what other people are saying around you. Got it. Got it. Great. That's beautiful. So again, talking about yourself, I mean, you're being, you know, in front of the TV, you're being on podcasts, just like this one, you're talking with people, lecturing, coaching, you're doing all these different things, meeting hundreds or maybe, you know, hundreds of thousands, different people. Uh, so what is like, it's, it's going to be kind of an esoteric question, but like, what is the one thing that you want people to remember about you when you meet them? That I'm not any different than you. Um, I'm not special. I'm not special. I'm not a, a Mark Zuckerberg. I didn't come up with some algorithm that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, in my, in my dorm room that invented, you know, Facebook, I'm focused, um, which is probably a little bit more unique than, than some people. Some people are very scatterbrained. I, and it, again, for me, it is as well, but I just, I zero back in and I say, what is the one, what am I trying to achieve? Um, and just kind of push myself forward. But I would say that the big thing is that I'm not unique in any way, right? I, um, anybody can be successful in this business. And that's why I love real estate. It's just not, it's not complex. And you said it, it's like people try to, they talk about, um, you know, return on investment and cap rates and, you know, uh, IRR, and they, they make things out to be more complex than they are. My grandmother had a sixth grade education. And it was one of the biggest things that I took away from her. And one of the things that I hope your listeners take away from here is, she had a sixth grade education in the 1950s, right? She basically told me, you have two things. You have income, your rental uh, income, and you have expenses, your mortgage, your taxes, your insurance, and everything else. You hope that your rental income exceeds your um, expenses. And if it does, then keep going, right? I mean, you try to maximize your rental income and you try to minimize your expenses and keep it, keep it simple. And if she was able to do that, um, then like she said to me, she was like, economics and finance and marketing and all these other things you should be able to do much more but i think people comp uh, make it more complex than it needs to be so to answer your question is i'm not special um not special in any way uh i think that this is a business that everyone can get involved in um whether it be uh one multifamily or 20 multifamilies um you know every one of us should have uh, some piece of uh property that we can call our own um, that'll help us, you know, supplement our income in the future. 
Got it, got it. And again, that's a beautiful story about your grandma. So, you know, that, that that's really awesome. And again, one of the problems, I think, in, in this day and age, we are just too educated. Yeah. You know, probably yeah, we yeah. should go back to the point, as, as your grandma said, yeah. you know, is this all about income and expense? Yeah. You know, which is which is like, uh, you know, like simplifying things is the is a true mastery when you can make complex things, you know, very simple. So so that's, yeah. you know, so that's really awesome. So again, uh, Willie, I really appreciate you, you know, being today on the show. I mean, so many great, great pieces that a lot of people will take away. It will help them impact, you know, their current real estate business or inspire them to pursue real estate business. Again, with a, your grandma story and your own personal story, as you said, you're no, no special. Well, in, in a lot of people's lives, you are, you know, doing the successful <laughs> business. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, you're just being, you know, humble and saying, hey, listen, if I did that, you can do the same. So I really appreciate you, you know, being today on the show and sharing your journey with us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me. Awesome. So guys, uh, as always, uh, just one question, one thing that I wanted to ask you, if you just pass it on this message, just share it with a friend of yours who you think uh, this message might be valuable. Uh, make sure to do that. Again, really appreciate you being on the show. And as always, I will see you in the next episode.